Well, good morning. That wasn't very warm. Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead and take your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 19. Is that good or do we need one more? Oh, it's beautiful. Okay. This is lesson number two in Scripturally Sound. And we've decided that we're going to start each lesson with the same verse. And Lord willing, by the time that we're done here, within a few weeks, we'll have this verse committed to memory if it isn't already. It is Psalm 19, verse 14. And I would suggest to you that if you understand the gist of this verse, it will fundamentally transform the way you think about Christian music. We're going to say the reference, say the verse, and say the reference out loud. Join me, will you? Psalm 19.14 Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Psalm 19.14 What does it suggest that if my words are not acceptable in God's sight, what is the risk that we run? At the end of verse 14, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my redeemer. Context determines meaning. I don't think that this word redeem is directly linked to accepting Jesus into your heart, salvation term. But it is the idea that God has bought us back. And if you search out this term redeem in the Old Testament, how often does God buy back the children of Israel? Every time they walk away. You will be powerless. You will be godless if God does not accept the words of your mouth and the meditation of your heart. And that is very applicable to music. The date was February 7th, 1964. Four men walked down the steps of their plane onto the tarmac at JFK Airport in New York City. These four men had a different appearance than the American pop icons of the time. These men would go on and capture the world's attention. I remember the story that my mother tells that as she was sitting with her mother watching on the television screen, my grandmother's face was absolute horror when she saw the Beatles walk off that plane. She was offended, she was disgusted, and she was worried about what she witnessed on the television that day. You know, such a story seems kind of humorous and archaic to us here in 2020, doesn't it? Are they that bad looking compared to what we see today? Not really. But from what modern Americans see in pop culture, the Beatles are very, very tame. Uh, many Christians will turn on the radio oldies station, and the Beatles are there because it's older music. It's probably much more tame than what you could find on a popular music channel. Why was my grandmother so offended at the Beatles? It's because she had never seen anything like it. Not in pop culture and not in music. 
But today, this radical idea has become the norm. According to Biography.com, and this is a secular website, not Christian, the Beatles changed the American popular culture in seven, seven different ways. Again, this is secular opinion. The Beatles raised the bar for the teen idol quality. Who should be your teen's idol? I mean, if we're going to use that terminology, we understand we're talking about Jesus, right? Because an idol is something that takes the place of God. Who deserves your teen's worship? God alone. God alone. The Beatles, number two, made irreverence, hip, and mainstream in culture. You know, we kind of laugh about that. The haircuts, right? Oh, that was not done back when they stepped off that plane. Number three, the Beatles made long hair for men acceptable to the point that it was even desirable. Again, we see long hair, typical norm in our culture, but this was radical back in the 1960s. The Beatles, and this is a created word, psychedelicized us. Psychedelicized us. In order for the Beatles to be psychedelic, what was their popular way to become psychedelic? Drugs. Drugs. The normal American culture is now drugs. The Beatles pioneered the music video. Can you imagine there are no music videos before 1964? Could we rewind the clock? <laughs> That'd be kind of nice. The Beatles made the world safe for rock cartoons. You know, it's hard to find cartoons that are not rocky these days, isn't it? You realize the Beatles are the ones that pioneered that area to make rock cartoons. And finally, the Beatles changed the way that we experience music. I'm going to play a clip for you. This is not a clip of recommendation. But I want you to catch the words. Just listen. What did the Beatles want to do? You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. You tell me that it's evolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. Did the Beatles change the world? Fundamentally upside down, didn't they? But did they do it through their wonderful, deep writing of novel and literature? Did they do it through their dance? Did they do it through their theater, painting, modeling, photography, sculpting? How did the Beatles change the world? Through their music. Take away the Beatles' music and you have 1964 and a bunch of hippies nobody cares about. Give them the right language, a.k.a. music. 
and they changed the world, and that's exactly what they did. Their music is still the most powerful force to ever hit popular music and has profound impact today, even in our own society. So in the last lesson, we introduced the concept that music is language. Not just lyrics, but rather the music itself is language. The purpose of this lesson is to show that this music, whatever it may be, whether it's Beatles or whether it's church music, it either adds or it detracts from God's righteousness. The Bible shows that God created everything. Did God create music? Of course. Did God create music to be language? Yes. I want to introduce this concept to you. Communication or language is either moral or immoral, but never amoral. It either brings glory to God or it doesn't. My good friend Kurt Wetzel wrote a piece on the morality of music entitled, An Important Question for Our Times, Is Music Amoral? with Majesty Music. He writes, there is a striking similarity between language and music. In language, we work with letters, which become words, which grow into sentences. Sentences develop into paragraphs. Does this sound like Wednesday night? It should. Paragraphs mature into chapters, and chapters make a book. So in music, notes become chords. Chords grow into phrases. Phrases are melded into sections. Sections emerge as movements, and movements become composition. In language, we write, we compose, we create, we think, we require inspiration, we formulate ideas, and much more. Music is the exact same process. Why? Because music is language. It is either moral or immoral. It either glorifies the Lord or it does not. Mr. Wetzel is indicating that just as letters grow into full communication, that is exactly what the notes of music do when combined. Someone once asked, well, how much do you need? How many notes do you need in order to make music? How many notes do you need in order to communicate? I don't even need the piano for this one. I'm going to give you two notes. And I'm going to communicate to you fully. And you'll know. Are you ready? da dun da dun da dun 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 Right? Is that music? Indeed it is. Now it's culturally associated with a film, Jaws, but it's the perfect music for the shark getting closer and closer and closer until what? Getcha. It's communication. I don't have to sing words. You know what it means. So music is language. Language and communication has to be moral or immoral, but it cannot be our moral. So there's a massive debate raging in modern Christianity, and I would even say this, inside fundamental circles, that's our conservative circles. 
And the question can be asked many different ways. Is music moral, immoral, or amoral? Can music communicate a message that is holy or unholy? Before we attempt the idea of defining or answering those questions, I think that we need to pause and define the terms that I'm talking about. Morality, immorality, amorality. What do these things mean? Morality. Morality is God's code of conduct that determines what is right or wrong. God's code of conduct that determines what is right or wrong. Can you be a moral person without God? Huh? No, you cannot. Do you know unsafe people that you would look and say, they seem pretty moral to me? Here's the problem. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They have no life. There is no morality assigned to them. Now, are all human beings created in the, in the image of God with a conscience between what is right or wrong? Yes, but without redemption, they are still immoral. What is immorality? Immorality is a violation of God's code of conduct. God's code of conduct. And of course, where would we find God's code of conduct? Scriptures teaching the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Immorality is simply the opposite of morality. Not reaching up to God's standards. But what about this idea of amorality? It sounds like morality. sounds like immorality. What happens when you put the word or letter A on top of something? It becomes neutral, doesn't it? So amorality lacks any moral sense. That doesn't have to be negative. That's not necessarily immoral. It lacks negative sense. It's unconcerned or it's unrelated to righteousness or unrighteousness. Let me illustrate it this way. That's a rock. Is that rock moral, immoral, or amoral? It is amoral. You know why? Because it's a rock. It doesn't have the capability of meeting God's standards. It doesn't have the capability of not meeting God's standard. It is amoral. There is no life in it. This rock is just as amoral as a hammer. A hammer is just as amoral as a firearm. Did you know? In the history of the planet, a gun has never gotten up and shot someone. Did you know that? I know, I'm in Montana, I'm preaching in the choir, but that's okay. It needs a person to pull the trigger, right? It needs a person to use the hammer. It needs a person to throw the rock. The object in and of itself is amoral. But what we call the rock, communication. So here we go, Ready? Oh, I can illustrate this way. Reagan it wants to be a gold miner. And so she found this large rock outside and she put it in the middle of Danny's bed. Didn't you? You did too. <laughs> so, here that rock is in the middle of the bed and Danny can walk in and say, Hi, rock. 
How are you? Does it answer back? Is that rock trying to express any form of communication? No, it's a rock. Rocks don't talk. If they do, uh, you get some counseling. You got to meet up with your pastor after the service, okay? Now, there is a sense that God has created everything for his glory. And there is a sense that that rock indeed is under a curse of sin. But that rock in and of itself is amoral. It doesn't have a moral quality to it. So let me ask you this. Music cannot be amoral because it is communication. What does it mean then when we talk about Ephesians 4.29? Let no corrupt... Now, I've put immoral next to that word corrupt. I'm not adding to the scriptures. I'm just clarifying. For corrupt and immoral are basically the same thought, aren't they? Yes. Let no immoral communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good. We'll talk about this a little bit with good. Goodness is moral to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. What does God want? Moral communication, immoral communication, or amoral communication? God wants moral communication. What about the verse that we started with? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. Acceptable to whom? God, in whose sight? Thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And so there is this sense that anything that comes out of your mouth and anything that comes out of your heart, for you understand that the two can oppose each other, right? Should be what? Moral acceptable in God's sight. And who is the determiner of whether is it acceptable or not? My tastes, my preferences, what makes me giddy, what gives me emotional joy, right? No, it says, in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. God is the determiner of what is right. Scott Aniel, another writer, says that music is not merely a tool of communication, as some suggest. It is communication. And again, music's connection to the vocal tone is instructive. The tone of the voice is not just a tool of communication. It's part of communication itself. All right. So, the tone of communication can also determine what someone is saying. So if I were talking and I would say, no, or I would say, no, 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 same word, four different tones, all meant totally different things. Music is the same thought. The belief became popular in the 1960s 
as the birth of Christian rock came into being, that music was either amoral or neutral, that it didn't have a moral tone or quality. It doesn't carry a message of right and wrong from the composer, but yet that implies that God isn't the one who accepts worship, but rather God accepts anything that I give to Him whether it is right or wrong. I think we would all say that the music clip I just presented to you, written by the Beatles, is not appropriate for worship, correct? Can we all at least get there? Why? Get this. Because it's immoral. It has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with God's standards. It misses it. We want a revolution. Give me one word that describes the Beatles' revolution. Rebellion. Does secular society agree with that? Or is Jennifer being a Christian wacko? (laughs) They agree. They They applaud it. But they agree. And so when we come to talking about music... When we use different tones, it's communicating different things. And what I'm suggesting is that the music you use inside your church, inside your personal worship, needs to be moral and acceptable in God's sight. I don't think I put it up here, and I'll get to it throughout our series here a little bit later on. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 says, Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. That word appearance in the King James doesn't mean uh, someone watching you. It means all forms of evil. You going into a bar. Or you staying out of a bar. That's not the appearance that it's talking about. That is a form of evil, no doubt. It's inclusive in this verse. But the word form is wider. It's all evil. Abstain from it all. And so I want to give you this morning introduction to some principles about the morality of music. Number one, God assigned the moral quality of goodness to all creation, including music. God assigned the moral quality of goodness to all creation, including music. Music. In Psalm 91, verses 1 through 2, God says to Job, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, Job is not born yet, right? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I think that's a reference most likely to angelic beings. Well, let me ask you this. Can someone look up for me Genesis 1.31? What is the significance of Genesis 1.31? Go ahead and read it if you have it. What was everything? 
Is there any sin? Is there any death? Are there any mosquitoes? I'll let you figure that one out theologically, teach another time. <laughs> it's very good. Genesis 1.31 is cohesive with Job 38 that the sons of God are singing when creation's done. Is their music very good? It has to be. It has this moral quality to it. So let me ask you, was music moral, immoral, or amoral at creation? It has to be moral. Because at creation there is nothing immoral. And if God says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's not good for man to be alone. Here's your wife. Here's the core of the family. It's all very good. Then music has to be moral. Principle number two. Oh, I actually had a scripture here. My bad. Um, hold on, let me backtrack to where I'm supposed to be. I got lost. That's all right. Um, give me one sec. Oh, I actually did have that Job passage. Sorry about that. That's where I went. Very good. Principle number two. If God sings, His music is moral, never immoral, or amoral. Can God produce anything that is immoral? God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So look at this. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee with what? Wouldn't it be so cool to hear God sing? Do you think we're going to get to hear that when we reach heaven? I don't think we're going to be able to comprehend anything on this earth that equates to God singing. But let me ask you, is God singing moral, immoral, or amoral? It has to be absolutely moral. Why? Because God is the definition of moral. God is the definition of good. Anything He does cannot be immoral or amoral. It has to be good. His singing is holy. Principle number three. Music is a language that speaks to human emotions. Therefore, it must be moral or immoral language. Let me stop here for a moment. Why do you have emotions? Because God gave them to you. You are created in the image of God, correct? Are there any emotions that you as a human being have immoral? Well, you would say, well, yes, I have to have immoral emotions. But pause here for a moment. Are any of God's emotions immoral? 
Is anger immoral? Did Jesus sweep out the money changers from the temple by turning over the tables and using a lash to drive them out? Was that immoral? No. Is lust immoral? Well, by default, it has to be, right? No, not at all. For if you understand that lust means strong desire, you're going to see that Jesus has this strong desire for Israel to accept Him. And He cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! How would I would gather you as a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not. Strong desires are not immoral. You get every emotion that you have from this moral creator that created you in his image. But let me ask you this, where do your immoral emotions come from? Your sin nature. The curse. For the curse, your sin nature has corrupted God's emotions. You understand that to its highest extent, music is an extremely emotional language. We saw on Wednesday night, do the blues communicate emotion? Yes. Music is a very deep emotional language. In 2 Kings chapter 3, King Jehoshaphat lived without any regard for the things of God. And so when his army got into trouble, he asked Elisha for help and Elisha was angered that the king would only ask for counsel when trouble arose instead of worshiping God on his own. So to dissipate Elisha's anger, Elisha calls for a musician and in 2 Kings 3.15 says, but now bring me a minstrel, a player. And it came to pass as the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. Why? Because music is language. I don't know the song that was played for Elisha, but what happened to him when he heard it? His whole presence changed. He calmed down and his anger dissipated. So let me ask you, was the music that dissipated Elisha's anger moral, immoral, or amoral? I would suggest to you that it would have to be moral. Because who appeared on the scene once his disposition was calm? Can God be in the presence of a sinful man? Well, if Elisha is emotionally disturbed, no. No. Very interesting. Principle number four. Music used to worship God must be moral. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here explaining Psalm 135, verse 3. Praise. The Hebrew word is halal. Any of the kids know this word? There's a song that you guys sing quite often. Hallelujah, 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 yeah. 
Praise ye the Lord. Can you hear the word halal and hallelujah? Well, sure. It's a combination of terms, isn't it? Yah is the name of God. Hallelujah. Praise you, Yahweh. Hallelujah. Praise or halal the Lord. For the Lord is what? Good. Sing praises. Now, if you were to look in our English translations, you see the word praise and praises, we would automatically assume that they're the same words. They are not. This is the Hebrew word zamar. Unto his name. The word zamar means to pluck the strings. We would say play music. Hallelujah! Or you praise Yahweh, the Lord. For Yahweh is good. You make music unto his name, for it is pleasant. That concept of being pleasant is beautiful. Beautiful. So Psalm 135, 135 verse 3 identifies two of God's supreme attributes. Goodness and beauty. Anybody know the third supreme attribute of God? Sometimes you'll see them listed as transcendent. Truth. God is good. God is truth. And God is beautiful. Those are His transcendent or supreme attributes. Do you understand that God's goodness is not the quality of being better than others. So, let me illustrate it very easily. If you take your children and out into public and your children are reflecting a Christian upbringing and unsafe people look at your children and say, wow, you have good children. It is based upon the behavior of bad children. Because your kids should act better than the bad kids, right? So some of us think of God's goodness as that, well, His behavior is just better than the alternative. That's not God's goodness. Rather, God is the standard of goodness. You know, in Mark 10 verse 18... Jesus says, there is none good but God. And so if someone in the secular culture looks at your children and says, well, those are good kids. The goal of us as Christian parents should be, I pray that they are reflecting God's glory and God's goodness, not that they are good in of themselves. For what did Paul write? In my flesh dwelleth. No good thing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Wow. So you understand that when we say praise the Lord for the Lord is good, we are saying that His quality of goodness transcends anything that this planet and sin-cursed nature can understand or offer. He is the standard. He is the foundation of goodness. But you know, God's beauty is not often discussed in local churches very much. So fill in the blank. Beauty is in the eyes of the... Jackie, go ahead and correct everybody. 
Beauty, and I, I already gave her the answer yesterday. She cheated. Beauty is in the eyes of the, how about this? Creator. Creator. Let me illustrate it this way. I have no idea who Miss America is. I don't know her name. I don't know her hair color or what it was yesterday, what it may be tomorrow. I have no idea. But in all of her beauty, she were to come into the church and waltz down here. People may look at her and say, wow, she is beautiful. Well, let me ask you this. What if she doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior? How does God see her? Is she beautiful? No. I'll let you redeem yourselves because beauty is only skin deep. God is the standard and definition of beauty. So when you hear a song and you say, wow, that is beautiful, you're in danger of making yourself the determiner of beauty because beauty is not in the eyes of the beholder. Beauty is in the eyes of the Creator. Creation is not beautiful because we delight that it is attractive. But rather, creation is beautiful because it reflects the beauty of our Creator. Back in New Hampshire, we have a season going on right now. And I saw this around the country. You have some of it here. It's leaf peepa season. You know what leaf peepas are? Let me translate that for you. Leaf peeper. We just say leaf peepa. People go up into our mountains and they see the colors of the trees change. And the aspens here are beautiful on the landscape of the pines. They're this bright yellow. In New England, we've got every color under the sun. We've got purple, we've got yellow, we've got red, we've got fire orange. It's amazing. So when you go up and you see what I would call, not when I was a kid, the rolling hills, but compared to out here, they're rolling. And you can outlook and see for miles and miles in New Hampshire, the rolling hills, all different colors like they're on fire. They are beautiful. Why are they beautiful? Because God created them that way. It's a beautiful thing that the tree comes to its growth end and it must rest for the winter so that it can create itself anew in the spring when it's time to do that. Who did that? That's a reflection of God's beauty. For did not God rest on day seven? Not that He needed rest, but He prescribed it for creation as well. Interesting. And so the music that God desires, it must be what? Good. Halal. Boasting of our God's greatness. Praising Him. For the Lord is good. And how are we to proclaim His goodness? We are to do it by making music that is good and beautiful in His name. Psalm 135.3. I hope you never look at that verse the same way again. This is the standard of the morality of music. That word halal that we translate as praise, it actually means extravagant boasting of God's identity. Not your identity, but God's identity. Extravagant boasting of God's identity. And so when you come into the church building and you open your hymn and you sing a song, 
Is the music in the lyrics extravagantly boasting about God's goodness and beauty? That's the standard that we use in our church. I'm thankful that I've got two gentlemen that work in the music area and they choose the hymns. And there have been times that every hymnal has poor hymns. I'll send it back and say, I don't like it. I don't think it's beautiful enough to describe our God. It doesn't capture God's glory the way that it should. Principle number five. Music must communicate spiritual encouragement. Music must communicate spiritual encouragement. This is not a deep concept. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace where? In your hearts. To whom? To the Lord. What does godly music do to the believer? It admonishes you. It builds you up. It's a balm that heals your soul. It's the way that God designed it because music is communication. Since music is a language, every Christian should carefully consider what this language is communicating. And that's the crux of the matter. Is music that encourages the believer moral, immoral, or amoral? It has to be moral because it's good in the sight of the Lord. I don't think that any of this flushes out what is the best genre of music to worship God with. It doesn't say, okay, well, this sort of music is moral, this is immoral, this is moral, this is immoral, I should listen to this, and I shouldn't listen to this. We haven't done any of that. Because it's very easy for me to give you an example like the Beatles this morning and say, thou shalt not. But the moment that you walk out of these doors, you say, well, it's okay. I'm not listening to the Beatles. I'm listening to everything else that I like. Well, if that's what you're doing, you're missing the whole concept of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to teach you that when you turn on that radio station and you listen to that music, you ask yourself, is this music moral or is it immoral? Is it pleasing to God or is it not? I'm not in a church service, but since Romans 12 makes it so that I worship as a living sacrifice, is everything that I'm doing moral in the sight of God? There we go. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And I hope and I pray that when you turn on that radio, when you go out these doors, you turn on that radio, you hear me asking, is it moral or is it immoral? For it's not really me asking. It's the Spirit of God testing and proving. And it's you taking God's standard and running everything that you do through the Scriptures to say, I want to be acceptable in the sight of God. Philippians 4.8 Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, the word means dignified. Whatsoever things are dignified. Does your music 
defined as dignified towards God. Whatsoever things are just, that word is righteous. Whatsoever things are pure, it actually means chaste. Holy is the idea. Whatsoever things are lovely, again, pleasing to God. Whatsoever things are a goodly, goodly report or godly sounding. If there be any virtue, oh, there it is. If these things are morally right, and if there be any praise, then you think on these things. So when you're listening to music, when you're singing music, can you say that my life is defined by Philippians 4.8 because that is God's standard? Music communicates because it is language. Its communication is either moral, immoral, but never amoral. It doesn't align with Scripture. Communication either glorifies the Lord or it does not. And so the believer has to always avoid immoral communication. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. This is a foundational building block that you need to get. Your pastor or whoever the Lord would provide to choose music, you piano players, you musicians, you singers of the congregation need to ask, in what I'm doing, is it moral or immoral? Does God accept it or does He reject it? And it is okay for you to say, I don't know. But don't end there. Flush out whether it's pleasing to God in His sight. Well, how do I do that? Well, you're just going to have to come back on Wednesday and we'll start to get towards some of these other things, okay? Um, I'm going to park there before I go on to our next message in worship. Thoughts or questions before we close? So what is your question when you turn on the radio? What are you going to ask? Is my music that I'm listening to moral? Or immoral. And now you have a choice. Okay? Father, thank you for this lesson to establish this foundational truth. I pray, Lord, that we would be confronted by the Holy Spirit with this thought of everything that we do must be good, moral, in the sight of our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.